Hello, and welcome to the River Audio Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We believe God has something unique to say to you, and our hope is that you feel His love stronger today than ever before. Enjoy the message. I'm going to read you a, a verse from Jeremiah. And I don't know for sure, but I have a feeling there will be some people here that have never heard this verse. You know, some verses everybody's heard, but then you run across them obscure verses. I think this is one of those. I, I, I bet, well, I'll read it. We'll see. Jeremiah 48 and 11. Uh, I'm reading from the ESV because when I copy pasted, I thought I was in the KJV. They read real close, real close. By the way, there's a lot of debate about Bible versions. The English Standard Version, is a, it's a true word for word, just like the King James. And so if you've ever been scared to branch out too far, and I know there's some wacky ones, but the ESV, is a, it's a word for word. So maybe give it a try. Jeremiah 48, 11. Moab has been at ease from his youth and has settled on his dregs. He has not been emptied from vessel to vessel, nor has he gone into exile. So his taste remains in him and his scent is not changed. Show of hands, how many of you have heard this verse? Kevin, Jan, Randy. Show of hands, how many of you cannot remember this verse? Now, some of you, are, you cannot be in both groups. I guess that depends on which one of you is talking today. <laughs> Jeremiah 48, 11. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for this, that, that I know you've placed this in my heart. And I need your help to bring it. I can't bring it without you. I'm completely dependent on you. Fill me afresh. Take over. Do what I can't do. Share the heart of the Father with the heart of your people. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Moab. Somebody say Moab. Moab is a small kingdom east of the Dead Sea. You know, the Holy Land is not very big, not very big. If you pull up a map of that area of the world, and well, praise the Lord. You pull up a map of that area of the world, and things are just a little bitty area. Moab is a small kingdom east of the Dead Sea, which, oddly enough, this one little kingdom would set the background for a whole bunch of the biblical drama we find in early Scripture. Lots of things happened in Moab, around Moab, with the Moabites, the king of Moab, whatever king was king of the time. We see it over and over and over again. The nation of Moab is known for being ungodly, ungodly, and in opposition to God's people, Israel. I'm sure that you can remember 
at least some reference of war with the king of Moab. And the king of Israel was set against the king of Moab. You can remember war with the Moabites. You may even recall that Ruth, precious, wonderful Ruth, was a Moabite. But she got out. (laughs) Somebody tell your neighbor, she got out. She got out. So this gives you a quick overview of the nation and the kingdom of Moab. But to really get a good picture, we're going to take you to Bible school today, okay? I know my wife loves the direction I'm going already. She loves this kind of stuff. To really get a good picture of the kingdom and the nation of Moab and the people, the Moabites, we have to go back to great-grandpa Moab. A few times great. Now, just as the nation of Israel is simply the family of Grandpa Israel, Jacob, you know, a lot of people, I find that a lot of people don't know that, and I think in church a lot of times we fail, especially if we grew up in church. We take for granted that everybody knows a lot of things that, that maybe we haven't heard. You know, I, I got to go to Sunday school. I'm, I thank God for Sunday school. Not everybody got to go to Sunday school. Not everybody had a teaching preacher. Not everybody's been in church. But, you know, you see every day on the news stuff going on in Israel. You always hear about Israel. Why is Israel such a big deal anyway? Why does the whole world look at Israel so much? Well, we would have to go back, and you would have to understand that Israel is not just the name given to a country. Do you even know what a country is? Do you know what a nation is? Honestly, a a nation is loosely another word for a family. People would begin to be born, and that family would grow, and that family oftentimes would be named after the patriarch, And when that family was great, you call it a nation. And so there was a man named Jacob. Do you remember Abraham, our father of faith? You remember his son Isaac? You remember his son Jacob? And you remember that Jacob one night wrestled with a man, the angel of the Lord. And he wouldn't let him go. And finally, the Lord touched the hollow of his thigh, put his leg out of joint just to get him to stop. But he still wouldn't let go. He said, I won't let go till you bless me. He said, fine. He said, your name's not liar. And it, Jacob means liar. Wouldn't that be a tough name to get growing up? Hey, liar, clean your room, you little liar. Supplanter, deceiver, trickster. So one day in, in this fight, this day, he says, okay, your name's not liar anymore. I'll call you prince of God. Translated Israel. So Israel is this guy's name. He's the grandson of Abraham. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. And we know the promise of, uh, you know, I will make of you a great nation. Your children will outnumber the stars, sands of the sea. So Abraham, that comes through the line. Isaac, that comes through the line. Jacob, that comes through the line. And now all of this offspring of uh, Grandpa Israel, we call him the nation of Israel. So now when you see that on the news, today in Israel, that's just Jacob's grandkids. Our global news stays concentrated on the children of God. Can't get away from it. 
cannot get away from everybody's attention being on the people of God. His stamp is upon them. There is people. Well, in the same way that Israel is just the family of Grandpa Israel, the nation of Moab is simply the descendants of Moab, Grandpa Moab. So when we talk about the nation of Moab, we're talking about Moab's grandkids. We're talking about this huge family that's now a nation. It's now a nation. Huge family, small nation, a relatively small kingdom. Now, you know how, now that the, the Moab... The, <laughs> I don't think I could do that again if I tried. I, I think I was speaking in tongues on accident. Now we know that the Moabites are Moab's grandkids, but if you don't know who Moab is, you probably do know his grandpa. His grandpa's name is Lot. You're starting to put pieces together, some of you Sunday school kids. Moab's grandpa is Lot. You know who his dad is? Lot. Lot is his biological grandfather and his biological daddy. I have to explain. Do you remember where Lot lived? Lived in a little place called Sodom and Gomorrah. We won't go into what they're famous for. But Lot and his, he had two daughters. Lot had two daughters. So Lot and his wife and his two daughters live in Sodom. And God decided to destroy Sodom for sexual immorality. And the Lord himself came down from heaven. Jesus and two angels and met with Abraham. And Abraham recognized the Lord. I don't know how. And he cooked them dinner. He, did. he went and got the, the best calf, and he, he ran into the tent, and he told Sarah, he said, make this calf. He said, make bread, get butter. Literally, this is what the Bible says. And he went out and he sat down and ate a meal with Jesus and two angels on the earth. And they ate that calf. I think it was a calf or a goat. And they ate bread. And the Bible says fresh butter. Listen, when, when health experts try to tell me that I do not need meat and that I do not need bread and that I do not need real butter, I say, get thee behind me, Satan. Because I have got Bible that Jesus himself and the father of our faith, Abraham. If you are vegan, you are not like Abraham or Jesus. I need that fresh butter. You got to say it like that, butter. 
I need that fresh butter on the bread, and I need beef. I need it. And so Abraham, our father of the faith, meets with them. This is when he gives Abraham the reminder of the promise about his offspring. But listen, Abraham's about 100 years old, and Sarah's about 100 years old, and Sarah hears the Lord say it and laughs in the tent. It's just an earshot. And then later the Lord said, uh, why did Sarah laugh? She said, I didn't laugh. And the Lord gave the best answer in the whole Bible. He said, uh, yeah, but you did. <laughs> you can read it. This is, what, this is what you'll get if you will read your Bible. The Lord said, yeah, but you did. So anyway, with their bellies full, he takes Abraham. And he looks over the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. He said, we're fixing to go down there. He said, well, these two guys are these two angels. He said, I'm going back. He said, but these two angels are going to go down and destroy the city. We don't have time for all the interaction. We're starting late today anyway. But you remember. So the angels go down to destroy the city. And they are there in front of one house, and the men are trying to take them. And Lot opens the door and brings them into his house and houses them the day before they destroy the city. The angels say, we're going to destroy the city. When you leave the city, don't look back. Of course, Lot's wife, she's a real salty woman. Well, she wasn't, but then she was. She was a salty woman, but she was a pillar in the community. Till the rain came. Till they started scraping off and sprinkling her on dinner, you know. So Lot's wife looked back, and she was turned into a pillar of salt. So Lot's wife did not go on with them. So Lot, uh, I'm framing up the age of everybody in the room to decide how I'm going to say what I'm going to say. I'll be careful. So Lot and his two daughters go into the wilderness, and his daughters say, there are no men to raise up offspring to our family. So they do the unthinkable, and they get dad really, really, really drunk and go in the tent, and that's all I have to say about that. So when his oldest daughter gives birth, she literally names him of my own father. That's gross, huh? She names him, of my own father. It's the word that we translate, Moab. Moab. So when we now talk about the people of Moab, the nation of Moab, their very name is a constant reminder of their incestuous beginnings. This is what is in them. They come from crazy. Is there anybody here not too embarrassed to say that there has been some crazy in your own family and lineage? 
And some people might even know that about your family. Some people, because of when they were born, have put together the dots, and they know something about where they came from, and so they call you the name of what you came from. You might be a Ruth, but they still called her Ruth the Moabite. The Moabitess woman. So now everywhere Ruth goes, Ruth knows who she is, but everybody else just sees a Moabite. Somebody might say, I I met this nice lady, Ruth. And somebody that hasn't taken the time to get to know Ruth says, you know, she's a Moabite. Am I talking to anybody here this morning? Anybody had any crazy? Anybody had any crime in their family? Maybe you, I don't know. Parent, grandparent, great-grandparent, great-great-grandparent? Anybody had any addiction? Anybody come from some immorality? And we're not proud of it, but it is what it is, and it's there, and every family has skeletons in the closet. Anybody have any alcohol and drugs and pornography in their family? Does anybody come from any abuse in your line? Does anybody come from any anger? Does anybody come from any rage? Anybody come from any jealousy, insecurity, pride, arrogance? Moab. Even, man, I feel the Holy Ghost talking to people. I just feel like he's going and unpacking. You see, every word that I'm going to say today, you're going to have to go home and unpack it. And I feel like the Holy Spirit is taking all this right now. And, you, you know, I know what it means when I read it. But I feel like he's handing it to you and saying, you know exactly what he's talking about. He don't know what he's talking about, but you know exactly what he's talking about. Even if we do not do what our family did, we are still affected. Still in there. Just as sin was passed on from Adam, just as blessing passed on from Abraham, Things in our past affect us. There is a certain amount of conditioning that takes place. A certain amount of programming in how we think and how we respond because it's what we were around. Or it's what our dad was around. Or our grandpa. Or our great-grandpa. And we may have a certain quirk that we don't even realize we're doing anything that it got passed down because great-grandpa saw great-great-grandpa do it that way, and he kind of does it that way, and then great-grandpa and grandpa and dad, and now I got this thing I do that I've never even met the people by 200 years that started it, but somehow it's in my makeup. Moab, 
It affects how we view things. It affects our perspective. Because we grow up and hear our parents' conversations. And we figure our parents know more than we do because they're big and we're little. So we accept by blind faith. When we hear dad say to mom, well, you know, so-and-so. Well, you know, people from over there. Well, you know, folks that come from that background. Well, you, you know that black people. You know that white people. Well, you know that Mexican people. Come on, somebody. I'm talking about, I'm not even saying your parents were wicked. I'm saying we're all under the influence. We're all under the influence. My parents were not racist people, but in, in our whole area, I was under the influence. You, you've heard me tell this a million times. This will be a million and one. What broke the seed of racism inside of a four-year-old brain? You see, I didn't hate anybody. I did not consciously have a problem with anybody. But something about where I lived and something about who I had been around and something about connotations that I had heard and little nuances in conversations and how words were framed, I thought there must be something kind of negative about dark-skinned people. This was just, I just assumed Rose and I were talking about this the other day. I, I, one thing, and, and she had had the same thing. You know, the closer, if we would go inner city, boy, y'all live close. We would go inner city. There's more crime in inner city. I remember as a kid, if we were going to go to the city, and my mom and dad, they would say, pay attention in the city, be careful. Watch around you. Rose's mom and dad told her the same thing. Be careful in big cities. Be careful. There's a lot of people. There's a lot of crime. Be careful. Well, listen, I only saw white faces here. The only thing different to me about big city was dark faces. And that's where I'm supposed to be careful. Come on, somebody. Did you know that a lot of racial prejudice is not even hate? It's just ignorance. It's not that anybody hated anything. It's just that people didn't know something. Four years old, I already got this in my head. And I'm standing in a shopping center with my mom and this, this black lady about the same age as my mom with her little, her little boy in the cart. She's pushing him along and she stopped right next to us. Her little boy was asking for something. And she reached in her purse and pulled out a pack of Fun Dip. You know the kind. Two cherry, one grape, two lick sticks, and you're ready. To... I love Fun Dip. That's what I call Rose, my little Fun Dip. <laughs> Reel it in. She 
tore off a pack of fun dip and opened it and handed it to her son. And she tore and gave him one of the little candy sticks, handed it to him. He takes it, gets ready to take it. And then out of her peripheral vision, she noticed that her little boy was not the only boy present. She, she said, oh. She said, did you want some fun dip? I want some fun dip. She said, well, here you go. And when the fun dip touched my hand, something back here, I will never forget. Something said, there's nothing wrong, black people. Hooking a little brother up with some fun dip. These are my people. These, these are my people. It set the tone for things to come. I didn't, know, I didn't know why every time I went to KFC, I asked for dark meat. It didn't make any sense to me. There were, there were all these clues on the way. Extra brown sugar. Yes, please. Hot cocoa. Thank you. And then when somebody showed me my first episode of Good Times and Thelma walked in, that was it. That was it. I said, I'm marrying a black girl. Find me Thelma. Where's Thelma? You <laughs> it's too much, ain't it? Too much. We're influenced by what we come from. But too many people become comfortable with what they come from. You can't help what you come from, but you decide whether or not to stay. Too many people get comfy with familiar. You see, there's a difference between comfy and familiar. Familiar just knows you know how to make it work. You may or may not be. The abused woman is not comfortable, but she doesn't leave it because she's familiar. She doesn't like it, but she does not know how to live somewhere else. So what has to happen is that something has to make us uncomfortable with anywhere we're not supposed to be. And we don't like discomfort. A lot of times, we will stay in a thing that's no good because we learned how to live there. They become comfortable with what they come from, and they never leave. Moab. The nation of Moab. I am my father. Now, our text is not, I hope nobody's in a hurry. I know we're running long. I got to give you this word. Our text today is not really about Grandpa Moab, the individual. It's about all of them. Somebody say all of them. It's about all of them. So let's look at that text with all of this in, in light, with all of this information. Moab 
has been at ease from his youth. And he's settled on his dregs. And he's not been emptied from vessel to vessel, nor has he gone into exile. So his taste remains in him, and his scent is not changed. Some of y'all have smelled like your family for too long. Now listen, I I can't move on until I tell you this. Uh, It says that he settled on his dregs and he hasn't changed. He's never been poured from one container to another, and he smells the same. And it says that any good stuff that could be in him is just still sitting inside of him untapped. A lot of folks with great stuff inside that's not getting tapped into. Who knows what dregs are? Wave to me. Does anybody know what dregs are? All right, I'm going to tell you for those that don't know. In winemaking, in, <laughs> I can't preach this in that building over there. <laughs> Ask somebody later. In winemaking, the best juice from the best grapes is first pressed out. Anybody remember the sermon series Pressed I did a while back? Yeah, this is part two. (laughs) You can go listen to that one again and then listen to today. Well, first, they are pressed, but this comes next. What we're getting ready to talk about, this comes next. As the juice begins to ferment in this vat, the sediments and the impurities begin to draw together and thicken. That's called the dregs. It is the thickened, coagulated impurities and sediments that were spread throughout the juice that you did not notice until they were collected into one place, and then they begin to stink. And you have to pour the wine from one vat into another, and it leaves the dregs behind. The dregs stay, the wine goes. And as the fermentation continues, more dregs form, and the wine must be poured out again to protect it, to keep it away from the foul taste that is forming when all the bad stuff starts to be realized. Over and over again, this happens until you have the purest, the richest, the very best wine. And then the wine is bottled off by itself and set alone to wait, to age, to refine Wine that the maker is proud to put their label on and proud to serve to the guest. You would never, ever serve a stinky, old, bitter wine that still has settled on its dregs. A wine that tastes the same as the dregs that used to be part of it. A wine that its scent has never been refined. You'd never serve a wine that has not first been moved from one place to another. 
You'd never serve a wine that has never been isolated in solidarity to become what it's supposed to be. Let's read it again. Moab has been at ease from his youth and has settled. Settled on his dregs. Keep the verse up here. I'll, I'll keep coming back to it. Do what you got to do with live stream. Moab, as a people, they just settled on the dregs. They settled on that old, thick junk, that nasty, stinky stuff that was in there, that had collected, that had manifest, that had become evident. And they settled for it. They settled on the dregs with no pursuit to leave them. It says, and he has not been emptied from vessel to vessel. Winemaking. The people have never been emptied from one vessel to another vessel, from Moab thinking to right thinking and better thinking and best thinking. He has never been moved from, some, from familiar surroundings, from the same stuff he already knew, from the people he's used to. He never experienced anything different to challenge him, never did anything uncomfortable to stretch him, never left home to change him. He just stayed right there with what he knew, just like you. The Bible says, nor has he ever gone into exile. He never went through the alone seasons that are required by God where you face yourself and learn who you are, the good, the bad, the ugly, where you have to admit it, where you have to recognize it, where you got to come to terms with reality and say, my God, this is it. I don't like it, but this is it. I'm not going to get rid of it. If I keep pretending it's not here, I can't live in denial. I can't ignore it any longer. This is what it is. It's part of me. It's part of my line. It's part of where I come from. He never went through exile where he would be alone and have to face himself and face God. He never went to that place where he would be cut off from all the other voices which would love to distract you from what you really need to do. Some of your party people are not your friends. All they are doing is quieting the voice that's the only one you need to listen to. And you have been running to the crowd away from exile because you hate being alone. But alone is the only thing that's going to save your life and take you to your God-given destiny. It's the only thing that's going to take you to your appointment. It's the only thing that's going to get you there on time. It's the only thing that's going to graduate you and promote you and make you what God has called you to be. But you've been running from exile into the crowd of voices. The Bible says, so 
his taste remains. He is the same old soured junk. And his scent is not changed. He doesn't smell any different to those around him. He can't be used to impact anyone. It's quiet now. Too many have been settled on their dregs. Too many have never been poured from one vessel to another. They fought the poor. Too many taste the same as they've always tasted. Too many, their scent has never changed. How many of you have ever had to move when you didn't want to move? It was no fun. Moving is no fun. Going somewhere new is no fun. A new, a new school is no fun. How many of you have ever just gotten used to where you were? You had finally decided, okay, I'll try to like it. And it even seemed like it was working. And then something else changed, and you had to leave one place and go to another. I'm not just talking about cities. I'm not just talking about houses. I'm talking about life, and I'm talking about seasons. How many of you, you were just learning how to work that season of your life? Things were finally lining up. They were finally making sense, and then something got messed up, and your situation changed again. Poured. Poured from one vessel to another vessel to another vessel. Many times what we think is our life taking a turn for the worse is really just God pouring us from one vessel to another and keeping us from settling in the dregs. Somebody ought to give him a crazy praise. Changing our taste, changing our scent. Many times you thought that your being alone was a bad thing when really it might have been the exile teaching you who you are and teaching you who God is. Thank you, Jesus, for exile. Thank you for the loneliness. Thank you for by myself. Thank you for the dark time. Thank you for the valley experience between the mountains. Thank you for the time they all left me. Thank you for the time they lied about me. Thank you for the time they came against me and opposed me. Thank you that they tried to kill me. Thank you that no Nobody stood with me because I learned through it all. I've learned to trust in Jesus. I've learned to trust in God. Through it all, through it all, I've learned to depend upon his word. Changing our taste and our sin, teaching us who we are and who God is. Even the Holy Spirit exiled Jesus. The Holy Spirit exiled Jesus. Not comfy, but the Holy Spirit was still the one that did it. Matthew 4 says Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. That doesn't sound like a nice thing for the Holy Spirit to do. I was led out into the wilderness where I was going to be tempted by the devil. Who did such a thing to you? The Holy Spirit. It was the Holy Spirit that did it. That did it. The Holy Spirit exiled him. It was not comfy, but it's what was needed. But it's what was needed. We got it all mixed up. 
on what's God and what's the devil. And then Jesus learned from it. You know, the Bible had said he grew in wisdom and in stature. Jesus learned from this. Jesus started exiling his own self. The same thing you're running from presently. Jesus started learning to exile his own self. We see it over and over again. Matthew 14 is one place. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountains by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone. In the mountains, in the woods, in the dark, with wild animals. And Jesus said, I'll take it. I'll take it. I'll take the dangers of the situation for the benefits for the benefits. And then he taught the disciples the same. Mark 6, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that he had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place. He called his apostles to a desolate place and said, rest a while. Rest a while, for many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. You see, we think that the times that feel good are God's blessings, and the times that feel bad are the enemy's attack. We have never figured out how to ignore the feelings and see the purpose. We have never figured out that God's own plan for our best requires being poured from one vessel into the other. It's the only way to separate us from the dregs. Notice, winemakers, get ready for this, winemakers do not reach in and take the dregs away from the wine. They leave the dregs right where they are and move the wine away from the dregs. Dregs don't ever move. Dregs don't ever go anywhere. So he doesn't call you to be something there. He moves you away from the dregs. He doesn't keep you here and take away all the bad stuff. He takes you away from the bad stuff. So much of the time, we want to stay right where we are and change the stuff around us that isn't right. But many times, God's going to leave that stuff right where it is and move you away instead. God did not change Egypt. He called Israel out and left Egypt behind. Come on, somebody. You got your pen ready, Lala? You cannot always have the blessing and get to hold on to what is familiar at the same time. You cannot always have the blessing and get to hold on to what is familiar at the same time. Sometimes the blessing requires uncomfortable change. Sometimes victory requires being alone. Sometimes victory requires being called into a wilderness. Sometimes victory requires giants. You see, we would like to think that the enemy's attack and that the giants are the dregs. No, the giants are the, aren't the dregs. The dregs were that stuff inside of you. You've got to leave them behind and then fight that stuff coming from the outside. But here's a verse to help you. Romans 8 and 28. And we know that for those who love God, 
all things work together for the good for those that are called according to his purpose. Over the next few days, the next few weeks, I want to encourage everybody to take a notebook into your prayer time with you and start taking a personal inventory. Now listen to what I'm going to tell you. This will be a great help. You should start asking yourself some questions to answer. And here's some questions. These could be some indicators if God is trying to pour you out of one vat into the other and maybe you have been hanging on to the vat. What areas of my life am I emotionally frustrated in? I can give these to you later too. What areas of my life am I emotionally frustrated in where I do not have the emotional energy that is required for that situation? You see, God calls you to things that some people couldn't handle. And there is a grace, and it, is, it does not exhaust your energy. It might be trying. It may be tough. You may not enjoy dealing with it. But there is a grace, and you, you got it. But there comes a time when all of a sudden, you're still trying to handle it the same and not paying attention that somewhere along the way, you didn't have the same emotional stamina for that that you used to have. And now it's not God carrying it through you. Grace has lifted for that season, and you are trying in your own power to carry something that you do not have the emotional strength to carry. Do you hear me this morning? Pay attention to where emotional exhaustion exists in your life. Because if you no longer have what you used to have, if you no longer have what is required and God is not giving it, you need to pay attention and take a note of that. I'm not telling anyone to start making rash decisions. I'm telling you to pay attention and consider and get godly counsel. Here's another one. What areas am I not physically able to keep up? Used to, I could do this physically. Now, I'm not just talking in terms of strength or exercise or working out or something like that. But the physical tasks that you take on, I pick this one up over here, and I drop this one off over here, and I go over here, and I deliver meals on wheels. I go over here, and I wrap these packages, and I go over here, and I serve on this board, and I go over here, and I do this, and I'm trying to figure out how many minutes do I have, let's see, from 308 to 312, and it takes three minutes to drive from A Street to Simmons, and I've got... Physical demands. What area of your life are you physically exhausted? What is physically exhausting you? Start making notes. You might be taking on more than you're supposed to handle. You might be doing a lot of good stuff that's not God stuff. Where am I financially exhausted? Figure that one out yourself. Get a budget. Do you need to be paying attention to some areas that maybe you're trying to force 
but there's no longer grace being supplied to carry it out? What you may be calling standing by faith, God might be calling you to a change. God might be pouring you from one vessel into another. Somebody say poured out. Uncomfortable, yes. Frustrating, yes. The hardest thing you'll ever do in your life, many times. But God's not making root beer out of you. He's making wine. He's making wine. Do you know what wine is? Wine is full of antioxidants, and wine relaxes, and wine soothes, and wine has the potential to start affecting stuff. Wine can be mind-altering, and God is calling you to be wine in your generation. He is calling you to bring the word of peace. He is calling you to bring health and life. And he is calling you to start intoxicating the world with what they've never come in touch with and alter their state of thinking. He's making you wine. You have to believe his purpose instead of your pain. You have to believe his heart regardless of what his hand is doing. I got one verse for you in closing. As soon as the praise team gets done writing their note, they can come. So many people faint and fail because the hard thing that they're going through, it's not that they wouldn't be able to stand up under it. It's that they do not see an end in sight. They don't realize that what's happening is not forever. They don't realize that they're actually part of a great process. Years ago, some of the things that I went through, if I could have known that it was God and not the devil, it may have still been difficult, but all oh, the hope that I would have had in knowing what was being accomplished. The psalmist David said this, Psalm 27, I would have fainted except I had believed I'd see the goodness of the Lord while I'm still in the land of the living. I'm not talking about hope when heaven and you die. We're all going to be fixed in heaven. He said, I would have fainted, but I kept believing I was going to see God come through on this earth. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage, and he will strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Would you give him a hand clap of praise? Stand with us this morning. Thank you, Jesus. Don't settle on the dregs. I got comfy here. I know everything's not perfect, but I know how to I know how to work this here. I know how to do this. I don't want to move in my life again. I don't want to lose friends again. I like these people. Can't good be good enough? God, can't we just kind of do this middle thing? Like, I, I love you. I put my faith in you. I understand grace, God. Grace, remember grace, grace. 
God says, that's not good enough for mine. That's not good enough for my children. He says, no, my grace empowers you to go further. My grace is not about getting away with stuff. Grace is about breaking it off. I'm calling you to look like me. I'm calling you to look like me. I'm pouring you. It's going to hurt. Here it goes. I'm going to pour you from one vessel to another. But the dregs are going to stick to the sides of the barrel. And you say, okay, God, you can pour me, but then we'll be good, right? And he says, uh, actually, when you get in that barrel, we're going to let you ferment some more and do it again and again and again and again. And then you end up looking like one of your precious saintly grandmas that you thought, how does grandma keep her cool like that? How does she know the right word at the right time? How does she have no judgment for anybody? How can she scold you and encourage you at the same time? How does she do? She's been poured from vessel to vessel to vessel. She has been exiled and left alone. She didn't settle on the dregs. Don't settle on the dregs. Be poured out. Be poured out. Now, if there's anybody here today and you've never accepted Jesus as Savior, before we come to Christ, we are sinners in need of that forgiveness. And God sent his son Jesus to die on a cross. And he was poured out. He was poured out. His precious blood ran out. His wrist and his feet and his head and his ribbon side for you. I always tell people, Jesus didn't die for you. He died as you. He died in your place. And three days later, he got up again. He didn't just die for your sin so that you could die to sin. He got up because he wants you to live. Salvation is not all about the forgiveness. Thank God it's about the forgiveness. It's about Jesus living an abundant life through you. If you have never come to Jesus and said, God, I am sorry for my sin. I know you died for me, Jesus. And I say, yes, I want you to come in. Start this process. If you've never done that, you should get out of your seat and come right now. Thanks again for listening to the River Audio Podcast. We hope that these weekly sermons are an encouragement to your life. Make sure to stay connected with us throughout the week online at theriverworshipcenter.org and on Facebook and Instagram at The River.